Well, I'm here with the sound team of Netflix's show, The Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance. I'm really excited to return to sit down um, with some familiar voices and some new voices. It's great to have Tim Nielsen back, who's a supervising sound editor, sound designer, and re-recording mixer. Shelly Roden, a Foley artist, and Tim Hand, our supervising ADR editor. So thank you guys so much for uh, talking about this show. Thanks for inviting us. So, Tim, as someone in your place... Uh, yeah, we, oh, we got, that's right. We have two we, Tims today. We have two Tims here. <laughs> just, just call me Hands. Hands. It'll be easier. Mr. Hands. Yeah. Mr. Hands. Yeah, Mr. You Hands. Make it simple. So, <laughs> so for you, Tim Nielsen, when did you first get word that this project was going to be in your hands? And what did they tell you? What did you know? What did you think? Because the Dark Crystal world has been kind of dormant for a while. So mm. it's kind of, I think it was a, a wonderful surprise for everyone to hear that there's going to be a, a Netflix show. Yeah, I actually been sort of chasing this project for about 10 years. They uh, There have been numerous plans to make a sequel movie and then a prequel movie at one point, and all of these things fell through. There were about four different directors attached over the years. Um, and I'd actually been aware of a lot of these things, and I had been talking to one of the producers many years ago, and it looked like it was going to happen as a feature, and then it kept falling apart. They couldn't find funding. And um, I don't remember the exact moment I learned it was going to be a Netflix series, but as, uh, as soon as we heard about it we sort of made some inquiries through the company and sort of contacted them and said we'd like to you know be involved in this and um and then we learned that it was louis Lettier was going to be the director who's somebody that i worked with a bit before on hulk uh many years ago just i had a small role in that but so i knew louis a little bit and so we just went after we started contacting um the producer rita perugi who's the wife of um the producer does a lot of uh, other Netflix shows, including Mindhunter and things. So we had a connection to sort of reach out and say, hey, we really like to be a part of this. So um, how early was that when they reached out to you initially? Um, probably about two years ago now at this point. So about a year before we started, I think we started talking to them and trying to figure out a budget and could we do it and what would the schedule be and all the logistics of it. It was probably about a year before we started. So at that point, they were just kind of getting underway with the shooting, I think. It's always really exciting before the work actually starts because there's a lot of, you know, intent and hope and inspiring conversations about what it is going to be. So for you, what was what was that kind of conversation like? Um, we only knew pretty early that, well, we had actually done a test a couple few years ago when they were considering making the show as an animated series before Louie was involved in things. And so um, I wasn't even aware of that test, actually. Somebody in the building had done it. But when we started on it, the one thing that was very exciting was we heard that they were going to do it old school. They were going to go do it all with puppetry and actually build sets and do it as they would have done like the original film, which I think very few people expected them to make that investment in time and money to do. So that was the most exciting thing was just waiting to start seeing things. I would sense some concept art and some different things, which was amazing. But to start seeing the actual footage come in of the actual sets and the real puppets and everything like the original film was mm. really exciting to see. How do you know what um, your crew is going to need for a show like this? Because it seems there's no wrong or right way to do a project. There's 10 episodes. There's a lot of material. So how do you think about building your crew and assembling your talent? Um, I mean, a lot of it's unfortunately driven by budget. You know, at the very beginning, we sort of, we know this is a, a Netflix project. It's not going to be the budget of a feature film. So we have to get creative and sort of go, okay, well, we sort of have a target number we know we have to sort of hit. And then we think, well, what would be the best way? And a lot of it is guesswork because I, at that point I hadn't seen anything. Mm -hmm. I hadn't yet read the scripts. 
Um, we knew it would be busy. I don't think any of us said it was going to be as busy as it came out to be. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, we knew it was an ambitious project, but when we finally saw it, we realized just how ambitious. Um, and so the, even over the course of the show, the crew changed and we brought in additional help when we needed. And it was very much a moving target through the, for the length of the show. But uh, at the beginning, you just guess based on experience. You say, okay, these are an hour long. It's fantasy. We know there's going to be a lot of sound design and things like that. We knew there's going to be a lot of dialogue. Uh, most of the dialogue was being handled over in London. But um, so that was all crewed over there and there were numerous editors. But so, yeah, at the beginning, you just guess, do the best you can. And uh, then you adapt. Mm. Shelly, what is it like to do Foley for puppets for these like creatures that we don't see their lower torsos really that much ever? Right. What's, what's uniquely different about something like Absolutely. this? Absolutely. Well, first of all, um, I'm so pleased Tim decided to work with us because, like he said in another interview, I probably wouldn't have spoken with him if he hadn't worked <laughs> with me because he and I both saw this film, the original, when we were kids. Um, I was eight and you were 11, I believe. And it just made such an impression on us both. So um, it was excellent to be able to participate in this and... I've worked on live action, I've worked on animation, but I have never walked puppets before. And hand puppets are especially difficult because it they do not have feet. So the puppeteer will move them in a certain way. And uh, sometimes they'll move them as if they are walking, like their shoulders will go up and down, but not always. So it was quite challenging to select the shoe um, because you know the, the palette of your tools like you're you're aware of what you need but will it work in this context is a whole other discovery so we would try some some things out and then play it back for tim and then it was a whole process of discovery and exploration Mm. i think this whole project was really all about that and figuring out where everything would fit in in this world and i think tim will attest to this too like each puppeteer very much had their own character so you know, some puppeteers would do a walk that was really convincing and some not so much. And certainly when we talk about the ADR, some of the lip sync and some of the performances could match very well. And some of the puppeteers and some of the puppets just didn't move as well as some of the other puppets. And so, um, you know, that caused kind of a challenge for everybody involved in sort of just trying to make it believable. Mm. Tim, for you, uh, Tim Hans, uh, <laughs> knowing how shows can go, and knowing just kind of the demands, uh, this this show seems exceptionally unique because there are so many um, characters, and because there are so, there's such a a need for kind of matching words yeah. to mouths. What well, what's unique about a project like this? Because it, I really haven't seen anything quite like it. Where there's subtleties in breaths, there's nuances that the characters are having to like r- relay because there's not much emotion in the face. Like now that the project is behind you, what's what's your takeaway of of, of working on the project like this? Well, uh, okay, so I mean, the, the, I've done animation. I've done a few films for Ardman, so that's you know pre-records that then fit into uh, mouth movements uh, that, are, that are quite complicated. Um, but this is yeah, this one's a real weird one because not only were we recasting, so what we did was we had. Uh, all the original puppeteers performed the entire script and, you know, acted out. Uh, and then we brought in new voices and th- those people then needed to convey the exact same information, but with their voice. And some of them had 
some of them had difficulty with the timings that had been laid down by the original puppeteers. So if you, you know, um, bring someone in to revoice their timing of the, the delivery of the words, how they would want to do it differs from how the puppeteer decided to do it or found themselves having to do it. So one of the big problems was actually getting the actors who were revoicing to, to find the timing. Then you had the problem with actually the puppets themselves. Some of them, uh, the mouths are very easy to fit words to and others like the emperor, for example, is not. And the reason the emperor is difficult is he has a much longer beak. Some I found with chicken run with Rocky. Um, there's something about a longer beak trying to fit words into it that becomes very, very difficult. Add to that that I think the weight of the beak when they were moving it meant that you had a certain judder after it had sort of snapped down or snapped up. So people were saying, have we got enough syllables in there? <laughs> you go, well, yeah, but what we can't control the beak sort of wobbling. So we were trying to find little bits to sort of fill in some of the movements. So what we had this slightly crazy idea, which got it marginally out of hand, I think, uh, was doing these passes where we'd get all the record all the lines, multiple options on the lines, and then get the actor to just breathe their way through the entire scene so that we had reactions uh, where they've just acted against the voices they were hearing. It, it, it did help give us a sort of palette of material to, to, to fill in. So all those subtleties you were talking about, the efforts, the breaths, the little reactions, things that, that wouldn't have existed, for example, in an animated film where it's pre-records, we were able to add and make it much more alive. And it helped sell the, the new voices as well. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, quite epic. Yeah, Tim, I remember... Also, the other thing, of course, that we were up against was that um, because the puppet mouths are fairly loose, they took a fair amount of liberties in rewriting lines. They did indeed. <laughs> well into, uh, that, well into are, the process. Yeah, there's some scenes where um, after the fact, once the edit was put together, that it was felt that some of the scenes, just a couple places where didn't really tell the tale properly or maybe was adding information that we, we didn't require and we needed something different. So because the mouths kind of just go up and down, uh, Jeff, it was the writer, was putting new lines in <laughs> and he was counting the mouth moves, getting the syllables and then writing an alternative line, which we then record and fit. And for the most part, <laughs> you, you got away with it. Uh, there's a couple of places where it was tricky. But uh, I think we did quite well. <laughs> so yeah, another tough one. A lot of a lot of new ground covered. Uh, I I think if I if I just go back, I do know the guys that recorded the voices for the original film. Uh, my friend Louis Elman was actually on that, and um, they had to do it all on thirty-five mil, so they didn't have the luxury that we did, at least with a digital system, of being able to finesse it very, very tightly. They just had to make it move. So we, uh, our sync is actually pretty good, I think. <laughs> I'm going to leave it there. Fantastic. Um, so th this world of Thra, it seems that when the initial film came out, it was not quite like anything that people have seen or heard before. I, I think the only thing I can think of was maybe Lord of the Rings. So how much understanding did you have to do in, in the early pre-production stages to understand, like, 
How much does the backstory influence the sound work? Like, how did you manage that? Yeah, it's funny. We nicknamed this uh, series Lord of the Strings while we were on it, being a puppet, fantasy <laughs> puppet show. Um, yeah, early on, the concept things that they would send me would be sort of these elaborate backstories and histories of the different worlds and maps, just these elaborate maps of where is the different places and locations. And so early on, I sort of had a list of the different locations where we would be, and some were recurring from the original film, although not many. Mostly were in new places, aside from the castle itself. Um, so, but until you start, for me, until I start to see it, there's only so much work I can do until I see it. We act very much to the visuals and we ins- we're inspired by them and so when we start to see the lushness then we have an idea of what the sound the lushness of the sound should be to match it and so i uh, i i sort of was thinking about those things but until we actually dove into the project honestly there wasn't a whole lot i felt i could do you know and knowing i needed to see the world to help sort of create it sonically mm. that makes sense is there anything that was kind of said like we need to carry certain things from because this is a prequel, it's just taking place before the film, so it's like you can kind of start over in a way, but you have to honor kind of what the foundation was. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of discussion about that, but I certainly felt strongly about that. The, the film was very influential to me when I was young, and um, and Ben Bird had done a lot of original sound design for the original film, sort of special sound design, I think, was his credit mm-hmm. on that film. And so I remembered those sounds from when I saw it, and I wanted to honor So I talked to Ben. He was kind enough to share the sounds that he still had, and I've incorporated quite a few of them into the show where I could. And um, But most of the places and creatures in the series are new. So there, there were a couple of recurring things. The Land Striders in particular was something I wanted to honor the sound of that. So there's some of Ben's sounds in there. We I made some new things to match it, to go that, to expand it out a little bit. But um, And then some of the creatures in Thra, because that was one of the things I remembered so much as a kid was Ben's work, creating these, imagine, these incredible immersive... Uh, surroundscapes. It was done in surround back then. It was so Ben had an amazing six tr- six track still of the oh, wow. of, of the, th- the swamps in Thra, which went on for about twenty minutes, and I was able to just mine it for all these great little creature vocals and stuff. Um, but aside from that, you know, the original film is fairly sparse by today's standard in mm-hmm. a lot of the scenes, you know, and um, for foley wise and dialogue wise, every background wise. So you know, now we have the ability to do something much more lush, much more difficult, but much more lush. And so we try to take advantage of that, especially with these locations. The locations are so beautiful looking that we really wanted them to sound like they looked. Mm. For you, Shelley, um, were you gonna I was add? just yeah. going to say that I think the way that it was honored was um, Tim set the bar high for the entire team by his dedication to quality because you want to honor the beauty of this craft that they have created. And so we must, we are, we count on ourselves to also work as hard to create beauty um, and at the level that they created it as well. So Tim basically uh, slept here to make that happen. I mean, um, when we weren't on the Foley stage, he was there recording stuff himself and um, just making sure to find exactly the perfect sound for every moment. So I think that is the best way it was honored. Well, what can you say when it comes to a project like this, when you have a lot of characters on uh, screen, a lot of movement? I can imagine for you it's kind of determining which is the focus point or sonically of how you, how you do it. Was there something that was kind of established early on that helped give you guys a little more direction, that, that helped give maybe even, I don't know, just a little, a little not so busyness to it? I mean, I think, you know, certainly when it comes to the 
to the dialogue and things too, there was just a lot of material produced that then just had to be weeded down slowly to get to the final product. It was a, it was a very hard show to mix because there was so much material on the screen. We generated so much material um, that that just took some time. But certainly from the beginning, we knew that we didn't have the length of time we would have on a feature film. We knew for the Foley that they were going to be constrained with the amount of time. So there were a lot of discussion about what, you know, what do we need to focus on? What, 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 what do we really want to hear in a given scene and what can we skip? What can we get away with? And that just comes from experience, I think, of, you know, having done this for so many years that we know sort of, okay, that's just not going to be a big player in this scene, you know, uh, for various reasons. Certainly when it came to the dialogue, um, it was sometimes a little more challenging because the writers loved to write their lines for the particularly Skeksis. Uh, every time they're in a group, every one of them is talking nonstop over each other. So Tim Hans had the formidable task of preparing all of that. And then I had the formidable task of try to weeding it down to the essence of what we need to hear. And, um, you know, Tim and I had long discussions back and forth about, you know, where can we just save some time and don't have, don't bother cutting all of these background lines in this scene. Cause I promise you, we're never going to hear them. Mm. Good example. That's like the Skeksis dinner, which was the hardest scene by far to mix. That's this. episode four. You episode said? four. four yeah. yeah. There's a couple of these scenes. Mm. Anytime the Skeksis are all together was a very challenging scene because they never stopped moving. They never stopped talking. It's like a Thanksgiving dinner. Exactly. Just, yeah. With like relatives who all hate each other. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But that was a, a classic example of just so much material being generated from effects and so much from Foley, these beautiful layers of the squishy food they're eating, all these great mm. layers. And, of course, there's music and there's, you know, all the Skeksis talking and laughing and all that. So th- this is where it gets really hard. And then it's then it's just hours sitting in the chair weeding through it, you know, trying to figure it out pass after pass after pass of trying to refine it and get it focused and getting it sharp and intelligible. You know, we knew it was a, basically a functionally TV show, so dialogue intelligibility is even more important. And, you know, I, in my opinion, I wanted to make sure that you hear everything you need to hear and then don't hear the things you just don't need to hear. Tim Hans, for you, um, how much of production was carried over and actually used versus uh, just lines that were looped? Did you find that you could save i mean was there intent even on production to save and use it or was it always with the assumption of we got to start over and do a clean pass the the answer to that is absolutely not a line not a shred of sound from the original production is there uh i i don't think it was ever really an intention for that to be used i did speak to the sound recorders he said yes most expensive guide track i ever recorded (laughs) um because we were recasting i think and the noises on set really made it kind of impossible to to, to use. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's um, it's all ADR. Every single thing you hear, hmm. um, the, 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 everything was done in the studio. And and as Tim said, there was a huge amount of additional material um, put in for off screen. So those going back to that banquet scene. There was a lot of material uh, written for that. But in fact, that banquet scene was recut several times during the period when we were recording. So, in fact, the first set of recordings were done to with certain actors were done to one cut. Then we would bring someone else in and they had been recut and references between the performers no longer existed. Shots had been replaced or dropped or repositioned. So actually, by the time we got the the final cut of that sequence, I had not only something like 12 or 15 different character voices to fit, but they'd all been recorded something like four months apart and rewritten. So we're actually trying to assemble the kind of conversations 
going through in the background which weren't sort of making sense anymore well they kind of were on paper but when the practical process of editing all this so what i what tim came up with the idea was look let's just do the on-screen lines which mm-hmm. i sent through i fitted all those every every movement you know every breath every effort and gasp and guzzle and, and anything that needed that you saw and then I did a background track for each actor, which I sent through subsequently, which was, you know, their reactions to the principal dialogue, if required, and separate off-screen conversations, because the table is quite wide. Um, so things going on at the other end of the table, which have been written. But in fact, I think it all just kind of muddied the water. So but at least doing it that way, Tim was able to instantly see which lines he didn't need when things got kind of messy. But I didn't envy the task. It took me a long time to put it together. And, and then for him to try and remix all that afterwards, and also even though we'd laid it that way. Yeah, well, that was one hell of a piece of work, I've got to tell you. So, um, yeah, that was, that was, that was tough. Uh, really was. Hmm. I, um, I just wanted to say, like, logistically, I think this show, I mean, Tim, you've worked on Game of Thrones for, I think, all eight seasons. Yeah. But just logistically – you know, some of the numbers on this show are quite staggering. I mean, I think we figured out there was over 10,000 ADR lines recorded in, I don't That's know, right. I, between 400 and 800 hours of studio time. There were about 16,000 Foley takes recorded. Each episode is comprised of almost 700 tracks of audio, um, including the dialogue, the music, all of the things um, we did, uh, which we can talk about because I think it's a big part of it, is the cloth movement for this show was, yeah. uh, which, you know, almost 32 tracks just of cloth movement, which is, you know, as many tracks as a lot of TV shows might cut for their home, all their backgrounds, you know. <laughs> so just logistically, and we were routinely getting picture cuts with 400 cut changes in mm-hmm. them or over the course of it. So just the sheer logistics of the show meant that nothing was easy. Everything was coming in late. Visual effects was coming in late. The picture cut was coming in late. The ADR was recording up until I think some of the last lines were recorded three or four days before we delivered the last episode. You know, So everything was hard on this. And it was also makes it that much more re- rewarding, I mm-hmm. think. But yeah, it was just logistically, you know, by far the hardest thing I've ever been a part of. I mean, forget that it's, you know, there's 10 episodes. It's, it's nine hours running time total of materials in the time we would normally do a single feature. So just it was, it's been epic in scope. Yeah. And in reference to what Tim Hans was saying about what they recorded in ADR to make the Emperor's Beak work, we kind of did the same thing in Foley where we would be able to watch the whole episode once and then take a try at it. Um, we didn't have time to do several takes. Maybe we did two takes per character. So thank goodness for the editors because mm. we would try a couple different things and maybe it wouldn't be my best performance um, on the first take, but maybe the second take has the first half is better. Um, and so they can swap those out or they can use some um, scuffs that we provided instead of the heel toe because heel toe a lot of the times would not work. They're not wearing high heels. Here. <laughs> <laughs> There's no Skeksis walking around with high heels. Oh right? man. Yeah, actually, the Skeksis yeah. and Augur were much easier to walk because they are human beings yeah, in a yeah. costume. They're upright and they're, yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You see so, their feet, actually, a lot of the time. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And they needed weight. They needed yeah. human weight. But Gelflings, they don't have much weight to them. And It's Kermit the Frog. Um, it's like little felt feet patterning around. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the podlings were all done with by hand by my partner, John Rush. He just did all of those. So that's what I wanted to ask you is your your cloth pass to me is and just like Tim Hans was talking about the breath how it, uh, it just like it gives a lifeness to the characters because 
there's not much movement in their face. Their eyes are kind of blinking. Their mouths are moving, reacting to dialogue. But like beyond that, like it's really up to the puppeteers to sell this is a living, breathing, on-screen character. So how do you approach this differently than you would typically uh, from any other live action or even animation? Well, there was a cloth pass that was needed for every single character in every single moment, but we did not have the time to record that in fully real time. Okay. So we provided Tim with a series of wild tracks okay. per character and designed the cloth per character. And then on top of that, you gave it to Anthony and Anthony DeFrancisco cut hours of movement. Lots of us cut out. So normally, traditionally, we would do a sort of a single cloth pass where they would watch in real time and sort of just do some general Reaction, cloth. Yeah. On this show, we realized quickly it wasn't going to be enough. So what we did was we spent, I think, one or two days on the Foley stage um, coming up with a little cloth mini library for each of the characters, or at least the character groups, the different gelflings and things. Uh, and we built a whole library. And then we basically, on our end, cut that from as a sound effect, basically. Mm. So the movement was cut um, from a library that Shelley and John and Scott Curtis, who recorded it, all helped us record. Um, and then we would embellish the river. But it was an incredibly elaborate thing. Anybody, any, it was the ongoing joke. Anybody had any free time, it was immediately jump into one of the cloth sessions and just move it forward another 100 yeah. feet. Yeah. We did do cloth movement for all of Hunter, for example, because yeah, he's certain characters. Hunter is a very active character. Right. And in terms of what plays, we were back to that, by the way, um, what, what serves the moment is really what we were thinking about in, on the Foley stage every time that we would perform a cue. What would serve this moment? Mm. So with the hun Hunter, for example, um, every time he would leap, we would accent that and maybe have a little bit of cloth underneath as he was running. But we didn't want to muddy the track or anything um, because a lot of organic sounds are in the same frequency. So you would think his, you know, his cloak and the ground that he is running on would be similar. So... But I'll just say that the, move, the movement was the last piece of the puzzle, I think, mm. for us. Because what we realized was we never anticipated doing this elaborate cloth pass. I never thought about this at the beginning of the show. But we realized even once the feet were in and some cloth was in, it wasn't enough to sell the believability of these puppets. We needed this elaborate – because they're wearing these elaborate costumes. The Skeksis costumes are, you know, seven layers of fabric thick. And because we had no set recordings to work with, we had to recreate every single thing. So mm. we, until we got this very elaborate cloth in there – uh, it was kind of the moment where I thought, okay, I totally believe these characters are here now. And that was like for us the final piece, I think, was getting that. Grounded them. Yeah, it grounded them and made them feel real. What, what were some of the considerations, I think, for like for the sound? Uh, there's some amazing like Agora's contraption in her in her study. Her orrery, yeah. yeah. I actually cried when I first saw that, honestly. <laughs> it's a great shot. Was yeah. that, that was, and that was 3D, is that? Was that a well, it's, it's that in this series, it's animated. The it is machine animated. is animated, oh. but it is a real, the set is real. That's, that's full size yeah. set. But the machine, if you watch it to the original film, uh, which was a real practical thing, right, this yeah. one is much more elaborate. It has many more moving pieces and stuff. But actually, the first time I saw it, I actually thought they had built it. And I was <laughs> talking to Lou. I was like, I "Can't believe you guys built it." He's like, "No, we couldn't build that. Are you crazy?" He's yeah, like, yeah that's, that's um, pretty convincing. But that that was one of my favorite shots in the thing because it's such a throwback to the original movie mm. and and um, yeah. So that was again Ben had some of the original sounds for that. Although again, it was. Back then, it wasn't nearly as elaborate as this one is, so it needed a lot more pieces. So um, Andre Zvier one of the effects editors, and Lee Gilmore, one of the other effects editors, had cut some passes on that. I made some things for it, and it just kept evolving. Um, but it's one of my favorite mm -hmm. shots, the opening of the, well, the opening sequence. Oh, the camera movement is like swooping right through, and she's sleeping, and then her little eye opens up, yeah. and you're just like, all right, it's we're back. It's a great shot. Well, yeah. we enter and behold the world at the same time the podling does. And it's just no, so right. beautiful. Yeah. I think they did a really nice job of honoring we're calling back things that you remember. It was like in its own 
unique way. I think very was, subtle. Yeah, very and subtle. Tasteful. Yeah, and of course they had to find voice actors who there were some because there are some recurring characters. You know, they would find yeah. voice actors to do their best and match. And we ended up doing quite a bit of pitch shifting and formant shifting on certain characters to kind of just get them that little extra percent. Simon Pegg's Chamberlain was amazing, but he was about a half semitone low compared to the original ones. So is is that the one that has the wine to it? Uh, yeah, the, the, the classic. Yeah. What, what's the character's name? Chamberlain. Yeah. Chamberlain. Tim okay. Hans can do it better than anyone. Tim, I bet. Yeah. Come on, Tim Hans, How's do your best Chamberlain. <laughs> See, That's pretty good. <laughs> so yeah, so there was, you know, in certain in, in Agra, um, got a little bit of work to try to match her a little bit closer because they were such distinctive voices in the original. I, I thought it was doing. the same actress or, or yeah, Agra was yeah. phenomenal. If you listen to them side by side, they're still quite different. But she did an amazing job, uh, the woman who did it in this series. But yeah, um, but yeah, just you know, trying to figure out how do you maximize the voice. The emperor would get pitched down a little bit to make him a little more menacing. Deed got pitched up a little bit to and make her a little is, more. Is, is that something that you guys just do on your own, or was it feedback? Uh, it was feedback. Mostly Louie and I would sort of work together and just he'd go, I really wish we could get a little more uh, scariness out of the Emperor. What can we do? Or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Chamberlain was mostly me trying to just because I knew that voice so well. And there was a thing I just thought, oh, he's so close. But if I just take him a little bit up, you know, it'll match perfectly. When I mean, it it's, it's, it's part of his character. Like, it's just like how he thinks, how he acts. And like, if he doesn't do that, you're like, this isn't the right approach right. yeah no i mean i thought i was amazing like i still can't picture simon Pegg listening to his normal voice sort of conjuring that somehow but you know and i guess you have mark hamill also as a scientist is that mark right? hamill was a scientist yeah which I mean, is like irrecognizable you wouldn't yeah. know that's him yeah i mean the celebrities kind of came out from everywhere when they heard this project was being made and uh they would actually call in you know and just say i want to be a part of this like i have to do a voice you've got to yeah. fit me into this thing and uh, it's a it's a ridiculous cast that they've assembled of these people yeah and um but part you know it's interesting is that the original puppeteers and for the original movie, they would have been mostly voice actors. They weren't big name acting actors, you know? Yep. And so I, maybe Tim can talk to this, but you know, it's a different process for screen actors to come in and basically try to do voice acting. And These I, are I disembodied voices. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I would imagine some of them are really good at it. And some of them probably struggled with that, just that sort of the paradigm of working this way. Mm. Tim, how often are are you uh, physically in the room with the actors, and what's the your process when it comes to the show? Okay, so um, yeah, uh, I we we brought in each cast member, and they would we would find the voice for them, and we had uh, I was recording some of the stuff. There was another guy, Mike Wabro, who was recording. In fact, sometimes we had three stages running at the same time, so we had the writer there. On one stage, uh, Jeff, and, and then Louis would be on another stage. In fact, at one point, Louis was in L.A. and Skyping into um, ADR sessions. Once once we got uh, the, the actor in and they found the, the voice performance, the kind of idea of how they wanted to uh, play it, then we had the process of recording line by line or even groups of lines if necessary. Um, very much like any ADR session, but the lip sync was more complicated and one of one of the things which I, i've sort of alluded to earlier was that when um when an actor is recording to their own performance in a film or tv show uh, you're replacing a line um they've got their own rhythm of how they do it so they listen to their original line and go oh yeah i remember that and we worry about the subtleties of you know the pitching and that this was a very very different thing I spoke to the puppeteers because one of the things that came up is, well, you know, maybe we could do this with pre-records. What the puppeteers said was we have a feed from the animatronics people, uh, like a radio feed telling them, you know, what's going on. They have a feed from Louis giving them direction, and they also have a feed from 
the the set, which is the other performers, the other puppeteers playing their lines. So they've got three radio feeds. So the idea of having a radio feed, which would be a playback, a pre-record of the performers doing the voices that they would then mouth to. Well, we'd have two problems with that, which would be, as far as I can figure out, was A, you've then got the lip sync the other way which is the puppeteer trying to keep a lip sync with something they maybe haven't heard that often. And there's the scale of the set, which you can't plan for. So how do you do the timing on the pre-record when you don't know how much space is? So that, that's, that's the end of it. So then you get into the revoicing. Um, timing was quite often a, a problem because there were also puppeteers who were playing more than one character. So in order that they could play a different character, they changed the nature of their own voice and the p pace of delivery. And it did throw one or two of our, uh, our cast members who had done animation before. They'd come in and done voices. That wasn't unusual for them. But, but finding themselves tied to a particular timing. Um, we could, while it was being cut, we could sort of tweak things a little bit. But once we had a lock, there was no moving. It was like you had to get it in sync. So pitch shift and um, time compression expansion was it became our friends. Um, in some cases more than others. Um, but it, yeah, we also did lots and lots of recordings. I mean, there were, uh, like any ADR session, you record to the screen, the line, and maybe do it eight or 10 times, subtly changing the performance. And, the, and, and then, and then maybe just doing wild tracks where we literally just no, say it louder, say it quicker, say it like this. And then we would pick the bones out of that after the session, try to make some decisions for Louis. Then there's the other one. <laughs> not to go on for too long, but that they were not re responding to the new recordings, that the actors themselves were coming in and doing their version of the new lines, but often as not, they weren't hearing someone else's new version of the line. So we have a performance from a puppeteer, which is being replaced with something different, but the, the one person we're working with now hasn't heard it because it's not fitted or hasn't heard it because it's not been recorded. So there's an enormous amount of guesswork. So when all this stuff came together, we were then having to replace lines because it didn't quite match, the response didn't match the, the, the question, if you see what I mean. It, 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 it's kind of performing literally weeks apart. It's not only replacing something, but actually trying to have a relationship with someone else that isn't in the room at the same time. So it's not like the Simpsons where they get everybody in and they all do it like a, a, a radio show. This was insane, actually. Uh, <laughs> when I look back. <laughs> it actually was insane. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, again, the puppeteers on the set would have all been responding to each other and playing and actually acting together. Exactly. And now, yeah. Yeah. With the, yeah. the goal is, re, you know, to re, how do you recreate that with actors in different continents months apart and things like that? Yeah. Tim, I also want to ask you, uh, Sigourney Weaver has this narration that comes in throughout the show. What was your understanding of the role of that? Did that change th throughout or was it kind of set and locked in? Uh, no, um, there were that, that that whole opening VO was 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 a difficult one because um, they were spent a great deal of time trying to find uh, working on deciding. Well, the text for one thing. They wanted to play homage to the, the original film with that, but also just trying to find the right voice. They went through num numerous um, suggestions of performers to do it. In fact, recorded temporary ones with uh, uh, Jeff, the writer, and then uh, another actress who, who I think was being considered as another puppeteer. Mm. And then, then, it, well, then we got this kind of very quiet moment. It was like, there's going to be a session in New York with someone 
<laughs> sure. <laughs> but, we, but we weren't sure who or when. And then it's kind of always very secret because it was like a big thing. And then Sigourney Weaver was, was it was announced she was going to do this. So um, she went in and, and, and I wasn't in on that session because I was so busy trying to sort other things out. But as I understand it, she read through the the text multiple times and then that was a, a, a version was assembled from those recordings that, that worked the way Louis wanted it to play. Um, so, and she at that time also didn't have the, the final footage to record to. Mm. There was a lot of um, visual effects missing, a lot of sort of anim, uh, animatics in that whole section. So it was, yeah, again, it was all sort of, trying to make things work without a lot of the things being there. It, it, it's, yeah, it's pretty, a very complicated process. <laughs> Shelly, I want to ask you about some of the tricks and tips that you use when working on a series like this. What were some of the things that were like, were characteristic for you that were like, ah, oh, this is, this feels like it's from the world. Like what worked the best, do you think? Let's use the example of the Unimoth. Um, Tim. <laughs> we're going to talk about giant pasta shells. I knew this was going to come up. We're never going to live this down. Oh, why? Tell me more. <laughs> we were just joking because um, in an interview, uh, Tim said, I think they use giant pasta shells um, for the Unimoth. And I was just laughing. And, and the Unimoth is which get, is The like, Unimoth okay. is in the end of episode um, three. It's the thing that leads Brea to the underground chamber. Under oh, the, yeah. The yeah. She's holding in her hands and it, 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 from the shell. Sorry, it emerges from the shell. So... Um, <laughs> Tim, you were there that day. Yeah. Uh, you were on the other side of the glass. But I remember you saying, I want it to sound elegant. So when I think elegant, I don't think pasta. Rigatoni. <laughs> no, I think it, the, the, uh, the, 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 the pasta shells I thought were only for the cracking of the shell, <laughs> not, for the, not for the wings. But, uh, um, anyway. They're great for breaking bones. <laughs> but um, that morning, I was walking my dog, and there happened to be some um, wild fennel. Mm-hmm growing in yeah. my neighborhood and so i just picked a bunch of bulbs because i thought okay celery is used a lot but yeah. it's not very elegant um maybe the fennel will be elegant and you kind of just take a chance because again we're on a time schedule so luckily it worked really really well and so um and then i replaced it with giant pasta <laughs> that's true you did didn't no, you? Did you're evil um so yeah so there's a layer of the wild fennel and then probably some leaves and probably a little yeah. bit of wetness in mm-hmm. there somewhere um you know honestly tim and i were talking about tim nielsen and i were talking about how do we remember these things that we did because we just did them so quickly and we make decisions every moment for every single movement so i don't remember everything i use no, it's, it's just fine, like you do it you solve the problem move on yeah. um but another moment that I want to talk about was the beautiful scene where Dee is in the forest and these creatures are coming out of the center of the trees. So mm. what Oh, that's episode, episode three. That? Yeah, yeah. Episode three. That's um, my other favorite scene in the whole series. Me too. Yeah. It's really lovely. I mean, again. So set, set up the scene. Uh, mm, Dee's yeah, sort of lost in the forest. She's been separated by from Hup. She's trying to find him. And she's in a scary part of the forest. And she so it's the forest, which has gone from this lush, lovely place, becomes a scary scene for her. And then she sees these little cute little tree creatures pop out of the tree and they have these very purring little voices. Mm-hmm. And also in the scene changes to the scene of beauty where she realizes that all of nature is sort of connected. And it's just really, it's just a beautiful scene. Uh, she feeds them. She and feeds them and they become her one, Some of them come out of the other trees and they're full. Yeah. And mm. so she's like, you're, you're all connected. And it's just such a lovely moment. So those creatures I really enjoyed using 
um, something that you wouldn't normally use, which was a latex uh, Halloween mask to oh, create the, yeah. the movement of their their little necks and then maybe some leaves as well and then maybe a chamois. And that's an example too of sort of the, the show is such a hybrid thing. Early on, we made the decision, Louis and I, that sort of um, – to keep it in line with what Henson would have done that many years ago is a lot of these little creatures, I said, we should be doing these voices with humans. You know, the first discussion was, well, we should cut all these out of animal vocals. I said, yeah, mm-hmm. but you never get the emotion you want that way. Um, and I, you know, some of these puppets very much look like little puppets. And um, I sort of made the decision with Louie. was like, okay, we should get a lot of actors to record the different lines of characters. So the, the, the little tree creatures, I don't know, they probably have a name and there's a book somewhere that has all these things. But yeah. that's sort of a hybrid thing of, an actor doing some of the things along with then some of uh, these baby bears that we had recorded years ago, which made this incredible purring sound when they mm. dream at night. And so there's a lot of hybrid back and forth between, you know, doing voice actors, even for the creatures and then animalistic things as well. But I think that, you know, everything about this show is this hybrid way of working. You know, it's like we have voice actors doing things and things that would blur between effects and Foley and between music and effects and all these things in, in a show that, in a way that I think, rarely happens on a show and live you know? action and animation it's kind of hybrid yeah yeah, so yeah, where is yeah that? exactly it sort of falls somewhere in between well, yeah. what's um, how do you describe that collaboration when you um between what you guys are doing and the rest of, of the team the directing team the producing team of when you have 10 episodes or 10 right 10 yeah 10 episodes so about 10 hours um how do you manage the back and forth and, and tracking notes and everything else yeah it's it becomes a very great elaborate i would spend you know hours a day chasing emails and phone calls and things like that and um certainly with tim and the over there we would um we had these elaborate google sheets back and forth because we were working remote locations you know tim and the adr team was all over in london we were here um and louis would send you know spreadsheets of notes and back and forth and we would send louis versions on pix which is a system that you can play back remotely um, so, you know, that's is one of the things that technology really helped us in trying to stay organized. I basically built this huge elaborate spreadsheet that would sort of keep track of where everything was. And um, Ben Smithers, who was the music editor, also had access to the spreadsheet between the three of us. And so I could just post there, okay, Louie would like to try something for this. And then mm. because of the time difference, but the next morning I would come in and usually have these fixes or additions would be ready because they were able to that's work nice, in London. That's nice, I think, so probably. Yeah. That sort of worked to our advantage to some degree was, you know, that they'd have four or five it's hours a 24 on 24-hour-a-day Yeah, job. so something yeah. going on 24 hours a day on this show somewhere <laughs> on the planet. And um, but But, yeah, I mean – there was uh, Louis because of his time constraints because of doing color timing and those other things also wasn't up here as much as he would have liked and probably well would have liked but so to be able to work remotely in this way if it's even if it's not ideal certainly made it work and we would do playbacks for Netflix two playbacks for each episode they would generate their notes um the people from Henson would go to these playbacks as well and so um it it all worked fairly well considering you know it's traditional final mix is nice to have everybody just sitting in the room and go okay decide right now what it's going to be right but I think we managed pretty well considering uh, the mix was done here? The mix was done in this very room where you're sitting, actually. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So it wasn't yeah. even on a, a bigger stage? No, it was all. We made the decision uh, to just mix it right here. We put Atmos speakers in the room, and um, I prefer to work in a smaller environment. This is my room, so I know it. You know, you know the sound of it, yeah. Yeah, and so I, Louis came up, and I said, are you okay if we just mix in here? He's like, I love this room. I got a nice little balcony. It was great. So it, was, it worked out well. It was basically only Louis and I in the room at any wow. given time. So none of the other clients ever came up for the mix. There's so. not room. I mean, there's two more but seats no on the room. couch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a cozy room. Right. But, uh, you know, it's actually perfect for doing something like a Netflix show because it mimics mm-hmm. much closer to the, uh, a living room of somebody. You know, we didn't want to do this on a big mix stage because it's not representative where – 
anybody's really going to see the show. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, but then you did play it on the theatrical stage, and it, yeah. and it translated beautifully. Yeah, we would take it into different rooms and play in different places. We would take it into our big screening theater and play it there as well, just to see, because it is a very cinematic show, and you mm. know, we certainly try to do it with the sound too. So, yeah. What did you find? Um, you, you know, it was in Atmos, native from the very beginning. Yeah. But then most people are going to hear it, obviously, on Netflix, which is going to be. I mean, yeah, they're playing it back on Atmos, and you can hear a five one, and you can hear most likely a stereo. Right. Um, did you pay more attention to the stereo mix at all then? Or? I didn't actually. I sort of made the opposite decision pretty early on, and I decided. I mean, we did. I, I was set up in a way to always monitor between seven one two, which is the Atmos version, the five one, and the stereo. So at any given time, I could flip back and forth okay. to hear how it was sounding in stereo. Um, but I always made the decision to mix for the best quality. We decided to make the show sound as the best that it could in Atmos, or at least five one seven one surround, yeah. because it's a very lush soundtrack. So. Um, so we didn't make we didn't sort of compromise the surround versions for the stereo version. We made sure the stereo version sounded fine, yeah, and it sounded great. It, everything folded down fine, um, but no, it was it was all natively mixed in Atmos, and that was what we were monitoring ninety percent of the time, and then checking to make sure that the fold downs and and the mix downs worked as we needed them to. But mm. we decided to basically make it as sound as good as we can, and the people that have the ability to listen that way mm-hmm. get that benefit. And, um, you know, yeah, we know that once people watch it on their iPhones and it plays fine that way and, mm-hmm. and we, and it still works, but we wanted it to be able to, for the people who had the ability to really listen to it and surround it. And we've gotten a lot of really nice comments from people actually around the world. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people have five one now it's growing and more and more and these sound bars are getting better and better. So people have the ability to listen to yeah. higher quality stuff. And so we really wanted to try to give them that experience if we could. I think that's, that's the new paradigm we're kind of faced with, which is that we're producing content, which is kind of in this box of vod and it's kind of up to the discretion of that provider to understand like are we going to release this as a blu-ray is it ever going to be released outside of the streaming format and yeah and i mean i will say you know hats off to netflix for streaming in atmos and trying to up the quality of their audio content scott kramer who's sort of the audio guru there at netflix has done a great job of you know they really wanted that quality their spec allows for quite a wide dynamic range some maybe argue almost too wide for mm-hmm. sort of streaming, but um, you know we did, we had very few technical limitations. We had to meet some loudness specs and different things, but we were able to go loud when we wanted to go loud. We were able to go quiet when we wanted to go quiet, and um, that was a luxury I didn't think we were going to have. I thought we'd be much more constrained by the technology, but um, in the end, it wasn't too much of a hindrance. Only a few times where we really couldn't go as loud as we wanted or mm. things like that. Tim, hands for you, just now that you've had some time to breathe and let the uh, PTSD <laughs> kind of wear off, um, what what is most exciting to you about this project? What's What, what was a lesson that you, you think is going to kind of stick with you um, from working on this film? Uh, I mean, it, yeah, this one's... This one's interesting because what what's great about it is regardless of the, the, the absolute torture, I think, that we went through at some stages <laughs> during the, the process. Um, you still to, have all to, your hair, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I kind of like, I look like a hippie when I started this job. <laughs> um, it was, it yeah. was um, actually to get through it, to actually do this, achieve this re-recording process bring all these actors in redo this use loop groups supply some voices for for creature voices for for tim nielsen to to and his team to mess around with to uh deal with recuts to be constantly having people on the stage recording both in london and la and new york at times 
um, to to have got through this, to have managed it. I think that in itself is is you know a, it's been exciting to to have got it all done and then see it screened uh, on Netflix, you know, on stream and and see the, the the genuine pleasure that people are getting through this. That it actually softens all that. You know, it also makes it kind of go away. Uh, and I must also at this point add that. Although we weren't dealing with this directly, there is all the foreign language versions of this. And these, this team, the downstream team who were dealing with this, they were waiting on us to provide them firstly with ADR cue sheets that we had assembled, which were on constant changing because of recuts, uh, additional lines going in. And then um, obviously we were fitting things which were changing the process. And then it was being mixed uh, which would then take some of the lines out or add some of the lines in. So we couldn't actually give them a definitive script at almost any point along the way until we got a final mix on each episode, which Tim was doing his best to, to get done on the schedule that was ever-changing. So I don't know how they managed to get it and drop it all on August 30th, but hats off to them. Would I do this again? You're damn straight I'd do it again, but I'd do it differently. <laughs> <laughs> and the, what, was your, what are you most proud of? Just surviving. Just surviving, yeah. You're, yeah, 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 you're, yeah, you're yeah. actually even smiling, Tim. So, you know, that's... <laughs> I've, I've, had, I've had some time. I've had some time to think about it and, and rest and do some other things. So, yeah. <laughs> I love it. But, yeah, it, 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 it's an, a massive achievement. If I'm honest, one all... On all levels, uh, to to have got through this for all of us, I think it's yeah. a huge achievement. Um, it's not really been done before. I know there was the film, but the film was very very light, recording wise compared to what we've just gone through. Um, and I, they, you know, it was an hour and a half. We were doing ten hours of screen time. You know, it, it's it's something else. And all these characters and all revoiced. Yeah, it's. Yeah, I mean, it goes back right to the beginning when when they were looking for someone in London to take care of this. So you know, they're asking, well, you know, who's who's got this kind of experience? Who's ever done anything like this? And you know, they said, oh, he's that idiot who does Game of Thrones. Why don't you get him? And there I was. So um, <laughs> no one else was daft enough to take it on, um, apart from the other editors I worked with, the other you know, Mike Mike Wabro and. Uh, Sam Southwick, Adele Fletcher, all these, all these people that just joined in. They're all crazy now. They're all gibbering wrecks. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Thank you for that uh, insight. Um, Shelly, for you. Um, it was, what was the question again? <laughs> what did I learn? How, how do you, how I want to tell you. Survive? How did you survive? How did you survive? Oh, gee. Okay. So first of all. Or what do you take away from it? I am so happy that I was given the chance to actually do Chamberlain's footsteps and Fizgig's role. I mean, if I just walk away from this experience, having done that, I'm very pleased and fulfilled. But the best part of it was the team because I rely on Scott Curtis, my mixer, to make me sound as best as I possibly can. We're very much perfectionists, he and I, and I rely on my partner, John Resch, also to bring it, bring it 100%, mm -hmm. even more. But we only have a limited amount of time, so we give the material that we can conjure up in eight hours each day to the editors. And then our ego cannot be attached to it. We just mm -hmm. give it up just like the actors, like the actors may get pitched. Who knows what's going to happen to our raw sound. So we give it to Tim trusting that it's going to be the best it can be. And it turned out to be amazing because I went to Tim's house because I have a stereo <laughs> set up at my house yeah. and I listened to it at Tim's house and I am so pleased 
just to have been a part of it, first of all. And also the way it came out is just incredible. It's pretty incredible. It's close to over 35 years later of when the original film came out and people are still excited to go back into this world and yeah. be part of it. So, yeah. Tim, what's your take on uh, but from the looking back when you said yes to the project <laughs> and being here? I think I still need a little more time to fully decompress after this one. This was so hard. But uh, again, I think... To, for me, uh, just to see the reactions, to get people emailing us and saying, you know, not only we love the show, but we loved what you guys did for the show, that makes it all worthwhile. You sort of suffer through it at the time, and you curse, and you don't, you lose sleep, and all these things, and and then afterwards, all you really want is that people enjoy it. People, you know, their experience is elevated by the work that you all do on the show. Um, again, being such a huge fan of. Henson and everything that they did growing up just to be a part of some of this was such an honor just to feel like we did something that would have made Jim Henson proud absolutely that's yeah. something he would have enjoyed watching or being a part of I think that's that's all we any of us could ever really hope for you know and again the team of people which I you know um please look up on IMDb you'll see everybody who worked on the show obviously there was a lot of us that worked on the show Dave Farmer did extra sound design Addison Teague John Borland under his years as effects editors and Anthony Francesco. I'm missing lots of people I'm sure but you know Tim Hans and all the crew over there Ben Smithers music editor everybody had the passion to make this show the best thing that they could do regardless of the fact that we didn't have the budget or the time that we would have liked we'd worked you know, tons of hours to make it happen, make it as good as we could possibly make it. And I think that's what we're I sure will be proud of, you know. Mm. And um, so I think this is one of those once-in-a-lifetime shows in a lot of ways. It wasn't an easy show, but, you know, I feel like it's been sort of a culmination of 20 years in the industry. Sort of everything I've learned up to this point was needed to get through this and, um, and you know, find all the best people to work with and then just, you know, work your ass off and hope people enjoy it. And I, I think people are, and that's that's what I'll take away from it is just that it was worth it in the end because people really seem to be enjoying the show. You guys, I feel like uh, it's just so hard to believe that it's actually there's a show that's on the Dark Crystal that like covers and captures the characters in the world because it's just it's one of those things you never know if you'll ever have a chance to do it again. And I feel like, who knows, maybe there'll be another season. We don't have to worry about that right now. Because... Tim and I will be in Tahiti, far away from <laughs> yeah, yeah. whatever the closest <laughs> non-extratable country is where they cannot yeah. find us. Shelly will be on it because she's uh, she likes to torture herself. I did speak to uh, Henry from Netflix at the weekend, by the way, and uh, he was sounding positive about it. <laughs> Oh no! Two. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, you know, luckily it'll take them a couple of years to write it and shoot it, and then I guess we'll all decide then yeah. if uh, if your hair's grown back by then, Tim, we'll we'll get you to sign <laughs> oh, yeah. up again. Getting, I'm getting some. I'm getting some cream to bring it back. <laughs> one, one thing, if I if if I may, yeah, you uh, we were talking just earlier about screening the film in various theaters. I did want to say there was a cast and crew screening at the BFI. Uh, um, theatres down in um, the South Bank in London, which we we all, as most of the crew, uh, production crew were UK-based, we all went along to. And I have to say, it sounded absolutely fantastic on the big screen. And the reception that it got from all the people who'd worked on it, all the puppeteers, all the technical staff, all of those people who'd been involved and had really never seen it since it had left the studio and been handed to post-production were 
on their feet. They loved it. Absolutely loved it. Uh, it's such a shame you guys couldn't have been part of that. Yeah. It was the reception was absolutely outstanding. I mean, the anticipation was they wanted it to be good. They knew that you know you could feel that the, the excitement. But at the end of it, when when the credits rolled and the music. Everybody just just erupted. It was quite something. So That's you great. should be proud of that. Thanks. Uh, it I, really did sound superb. I'd I'd love for you know it's my my pipe dream is that someday Netflix you know the, as the show you know you kind of hope this show will gain its own cult classic like yeah, course, status yeah. like there's yeah. um I'd love for people to be able to see this on the big screen. I wish that Netflix would do some special series of screenings even just in L.A. or something and show all Fathom ten episodes. Events. Yeah, Fathom yeah. events. Mm-hmm. Do a week long thing and um, because you know it's. It's designed to be watched anywhere, but it, it's amazing to see on the big screen it's and with in full Atmos be. sound and mm-hmm. everything in 4K and, you know, all these things. So, yeah, my hope is that maybe... maybe That's what I was wondering, like a home release even of... Yeah, I don't know if they'll ever do a Blu-ray release right. or anything like that. I'd love to see that. Or, I'd again, I'd love to see it in the theaters. Anytime we've been able to see it on the big screen, it's been an incredible experience as well. I so. think it's, it's always helpful when the fans are pretty vocal about that's right about it so yeah i'll start a little get those petitions. letter writing yeah. campaign get those going exactly going. so oh, fantastic well tim hands shelly roden and tim nielsen thank you guys so much for chatting about this little project yeah, little, thank you little art film, little, <laughs> little art film that uh no one wanted or knew about or yeah it's always the case and then obviously it's so well received and your work is it speaks for itself i think It'll be something that we'll be looking back on as something that was like this kind of amazing little opportunity that everyone had a chance to collaborate on. So, yeah. Well, thanks so much yeah. for uh, talking thank to Thank you. Today. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening to my chat with the sound team of The Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance. You can hear more conversations with sound designers, composers, and directors on the Soundworks Collection podcast on iTunes and streaming online at soundworkscollection.com.